Glory to God in the highest. He is certainly worthy of all our praise and all our worship, right? Amen. Amen. Well, let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. And I'll warn you, this uh, sermon here, it's going to be PG-13. So if you're under 13 here, as long as you have a guardian present, they're the ones who will write the elders the email later. (laughs) They must be present. Chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through the end of the chapter. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was scattered abroad. Then Noah began to be a man of the land and had planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Then Ham, the father of Canaan, uh, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took the garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Then Noah awoke from his wine. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years And he died. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the privilege of coming together to be instructed and encouraged by your holy and inspired word. We pray that you would do just that for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we finally made it. We finally made it to the point in this narrative account where Noah speaks. Uh, This is number... Sermon number seven on the flood here. We've been in this account since October. We haven't heard a peep from the patriarch. We saw him become a father of three boys at the ripe old age of 500. We saw him find favor in the sight of Yahweh. We saw him then uh, being declared righteous by Yahweh. And he was granted faith by God's electing grace alone. We even saw him walking in that faith, preaching righteousness, building an ark, obeying his Lord, yet still no commentary. We heard of many years going by, which included a global catastrophe. We saw leadership characteristics displayed, faithful sacrifices made, divine covenants given, uh, blessings bestowed, but through it all, Noah, to this point in the biblical account, has been silent. He's been silent, but that all changes today. Noah speaks today. Today, this faithful man of God, this new Adam, gets his three verses. And boy, are they a doozy. Let's just dive right in this morning. So much to get to, so little time. Point one in your outline, Moses writes in verse 18. 
Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Okay, so here we see in the single verse, the conclusion of Yahweh's global judgment upon evil mankind, which actually ended with a divine covenant, a beautiful and radiant reminder to himself and to all of mankind that the events of Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 would never happen again. Now we see this disembarking where four men, uh, literally, literally the last four men on earth, come out of this once floating box. Noah, Ham, Japheth, and Shem. Shem, whose name means name. More on that in a moment, but interestingly, we see another name included in this event. Canaan, the son of Ham. Obviously, Canaan wasn't on the ark, but Moses is setting up what happens next, almost as if to say, let me introduce you to a man named Canaan. His dad was one of the four men on the ark. And through these men, verse 19 says, the whole earth was scattered abroad. From these three, the whole earth was scattered. That means all mankind since, all men, women, and children over the next four millennia, all men, women, and children living even today, all men, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless even if you believe in this account or you don't believe, all of us in here came from one of these three men. Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Three men who were providentially preserved, sovereignly spared to this point in the narrative, even blessed by God who gave them the ability to reproduce, to multiply, to once again replenish the human race and once again fill this earth with his divine image bearers. What a gracious God we serve. This is a whole new world for these guys, a whole new environment a whole new opportunity for the restoration and reconciliation of the re- relationship between a holy God and sinful man. Think about the grace of God for a moment. As you sit here today, even today, hearing his holy and inspired word, the inter-Trinitarian dialogue could have very easily been, meh, that whole human experiment there, that was a big failure. Man, Those were some truly wicked people, weren't they? I'm glad we wiped them all out. Let's create something else and see how it goes. But you see, that would go against the very nature of Yahweh. First of all, he doesn't see how things go. He causes things to go, and just as he pleases. Second, he is faithful. He is true. He is unchanging. He made a promise. He made a promise to Adam and Eve. You remember that promise in in Genesis chapter 3? Right in the midst of cursing the serpent, uh, the cursing of the earth. Right, Right after sin entered into the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all men sinned. You remember what he said? He said, Eve, uh, your childbearing will be painful. Labor is going to be painful for you. You will be at enmity with Satan, your offspring, and his offspring. They will be at war with each other. To Adam, he said, your labor will be painful as well. Work will be difficult. The ground is cursed. Plus, your line has been corrupted. Everything that has been tainted by your sin. All who come after you, all conceived of, in, uh, of, of Adam's seed, will be born in the same now spiritually dead condition. They will be born judged already, condemned already. 
spiritually separated from me already, deserving of my righteous wrath already, even from their conception. But I have good news, he says to Adam. There's coming another seed, an incorruptible seed, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. A deliverer, a savior. One is coming who will right every wrong, who will reverse the curse, who will strike the serpent's head. One is coming. I will preserve a godly, righteous line through your offspring. And one day he will come from that line, born of a woman, not born of the seed of Adam, not of the seed of sin. He's not going to have an earthly, sinful father. He's not going to be conceived through tainted, seminal transmission. He won't inherit your same corrupted nature, Adam. But he will be of her seed, the seed of the woman, And that's what we've seen, right? Two seeds, the righteous seed, the wicked seed. Cain, the firstborn, he was of the wicked seed. Abel, the secondborn, was of the righteous seed. There was hope with Abel, but it was short-lived because Cain uh, slew his brother in cold blood, making way for a new righteous seed. A new son was born named Seth. Seth fathered Enosh. Enosh fathered Kenan. The righteous line was preserved through descendant after descendant after descendant all the way till we get to Noah. Now we have Noah. We have the three descendants of Noah. And that's it. Everyone else is dead. Dead. So here's the $64,000 question. Uh, Which son will be of which line? Which son will be righteous? Which son will be wicked? Which one of these boys will live to, to keep this seed alive? That Genesis uh, 3.15 promise alive. We did see a mention of the next generation in verse 18. So could it be? Will it be Ham? Ham and his son Canaan? Negative. How do we know? Because we keep reading. Verse 20. Then Noah began to be a man of the land. He planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk, uncovered himself inside his tent. Ah, yes, a whole new world, the same old man, right? First of all, notice, some time has passed here. How much time? Well, enough time for Noah to get off the ark, begin to cultivate the ground, begin to be a man of the land, a man of the soil, a farmer. What's this farmer's preferred produce? The fruit of the vine, viticulture. Noah was a grape man, okay? Yet another wonderful blessing from the Lord, by the way. Who doesn't enjoy some nice, refreshing grapes on a hot summer's afternoon? Well, Noah liked himself some grapes, okay? So much so that once some time had passed, maybe as many as 10 to 20 years, Uh, Enough time for a vineyard to grow, perhaps for the grapes to be harvested, for a little fermentation to take place. Enough time had passed to get to the point where Noah realized that these grapes were not only refreshing right off the vine, but actually if they were crushed up, mashed down, mixed together with a little bit of yeast, put in a sealed container, stashed in a dark place for a while, a pretty tasty and beneficial beverage could be produced as well. You see, when that yeast begins to absorb the sugars found in the grapes, it produces carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide and alcohol. Alcohol, which again, when consumed, can provide a person with some wonderful benefits from both a physical and mental standpoint. Uh, The writer of the 104th Psalm said, such sweet wine makes a man's heart glad. 
Numbers 15, God told Israel to include in their sacrifices a drink offering. One third of a hen of wine is a soothing aroma to Yahweh. That makes sense. In Judges, we read a parable that says it cheers men. In fact, it makes both men and God glad. Those are pretty encouraging texts for a man who spends his days laboring upon a cursed ground. Praise the Lord. But it wasn't just an Old Testament provision, right? Paul told Timothy, you know this, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now it makes you wonder why he didn't just heal him with a word like our charismatic friends claim to do today. You are healed. No, his word was this, take a little wine. Take a little wine. Even Jesus himself not only turned water into wine in his first public miracle in Cana in Galilee, but actually instituted it as a, as a symbolic representation of the new covenant, of his blood of the new covenant. Wine is a blessed provision from the Lord. But as we know, while everything is lawful, all things are not profitable, right? Not all things build up, Paul says. In fact, some things that are lawful can make a man stumble and fall. And we know good and well that while this was a whole new world post-flood, we're still talking about the same old man. The, the fruit of the vine, like nearly everything else in this corrupted world, can be abused by those who lack self-control, by those who might be more easily swayed by the temptations to sin, which could be all of us in certain areas, even believers. And that's exactly what happened to this great man of faith in our text here. Again, verse 21 says, Noah drank of the wine, became drunk, intoxicated, inebriated, maybe less sophisticated words, sloshed, hammered, <laughs> plastered. This preacher of righteousness was three sheets to the wind. However, the sheets don't come till later in the narrative. For now, Moses says every hindrance of attire was cast aside by Noah. At this point, Noah began to strip himself naked. He uncovered himself inside his tent. Again, a whole new world, same old man. Whole new world, new landscape, new company, new generation, new mandate, yet the same old man with that same old fallen nature. The application is clear. If such a great hero of the faith can fall so hard, if a guy like Noah can fall so hard, so can any of us. May we not be so arrogant to think we couldn't fall even in the same way. Well, fall Noah did, and in doing so, displays again, in my estimation, the veracity and reliability of Scripture. Wouldn't it have been so much better to paint this man who stands in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 in the best light possible for future, future generations here? He could have been the man. Uh, he could have been our perfect example of perfect adherence to the perfect standards of our perfect creator. Yet here he lies in his birthday suit, perhaps even face down in the sand, a miserably drunken mess. And neither Moses nor the Holy Spirit who inspired him held anything back in their description of man's remaining depravity. Okay? A.W. Pink said the same. He said, It is human to err, but it is also human to conceal the blemishes of those we admire. Had the Bible been a human production, had it been written by uninspired historians, the defects of its leading characters would have been ignored. Or, if recorded at all, an attempt to... 
extenuation would have been made. An attempt at extenuation would have been made. Had some human admirer chronicled the history of Noah, his awful fall would have been omitted. The fact that it is recorded and that that no effort is made to excuse his sin is evidence that the characters of the Bibles are painted in the colors of truth and nature. That such characters were not sketched by human pens that Moses and the other historians must have written by divine inspiration. Oh yes, it's man's natural reaction to lessen the severity of our own depravity. We see it even today, right? Leaving the door of self-glorification through sin minimization open just, uh, just enough, just a little bit, to say that we had some part in, our divi- in divine reconciliation. There are even some commentators that I read about who claim that Noah acted so differently from before the flood that this must be a different person we're talking about here, or, or at least a different source, a different author. In other words, they're saying man cannot possibly be as bad as the scriptures say they are. But actually, if we're being honest with ourselves, and we're being honest about what the scriptures teach, uh, sinful men, all men since Adam, all of us, were born completely and totally spiritually bankrupt. And I'll just say it, as offended men and women continue to go out from us, and attack us as they leave simply for preaching such truths. To lessen the totality of our depravity in any way, shape, or form only really diminishes the amazing divine grace which Yahweh extends upon us through the gospel. That's all you're doing. Much better to say this. Oh yeah, it literally took all of a divine miracle to save a wretch like me. And frankly, I have about as much ability to contribute anything to my salvation as I do of performing a divine miracle this morning. In other words, zero. Zero. Let me, let me just be straight up with everyone this morning. <laughs> I'm not here to tell Christians what they want to hear. I'm here to tell Christians what they need to hear, myself included. It's the loving thing to do, right? You preach the truth in love. What makes God's grace so amazing is that neither Noah nor any of us miserable wretches are deserving of such divine mercy. Yet, he willingly extends it to many. And he sets us free from our enslavement to our own sin nature and even gives us the ability to live for him and to live for his glory. But interestingly, as we see here in verses 20 through 24, even saving grace cannot fully temper the passions of our flesh, nor will it fully temper these passions until that moment we are in glory with him. Why, even this man who was chosen by God, called by God, favored by God, divinely uh, or declared righteous by Yahweh himself, spared through no doing of his own, responded right after the flood by deliberately making wine, then deliberately consuming it to the point of getting naked and passing out in his tent here. And don't tell me this was just some kid having a little fun. He was 600 years old at this point. He was well past the legal drinking age in Colorado. (laughs) 
He had sons that were over 100 years old at this point. Sons who were also a product of the fall, who were also totally depraved. Sons who, if they were not shown the grace and favor of Yahweh, who were not called for his salvation by his sovereign electing grace alone and made alive by their faith alone, would end up going the way of the folks who uh, perished in the flood, would end up going the way of Cain. Spend all of their eternity in that same spiritually dead condition, separated from the love of their creator forever. So let's check in on these sons, see what, what they make of all of this. And I want to spend most of our time on these verses this morning. We'll hit 25 and 26 in depth next week with chapter 10, but we got to clear this up. We got to clear this up. Every time I, I mention to someone that we're in the flood account, it seems like the natural response is, ooh, Noah and his sons. What happened there? What happened there? And I say, I don't know. I haven't studied it fully yet. But I have now. So let's camp out a little bit here. Moses writes in verse 22, Then Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay, here we go. We're getting into it. We're getting into some of these risque texts in Genesis. I'm sure you've heard some pretty wild theories as to the possible meanings of this text in particular. But I can assure you, Such interpretations only arise when a person begins to stray from the plain, literal meaning. When people begin to read uh, into or insert something into the text that just isn't there, okay? For example, seeing the nakedness. Moses said, Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Now, a plain reading of this text would tell you that Ham saw his dad naked, right? Okay, not necessarily appropriate. No doubt a person wants to maintain their privacy, uh, especially in that place and time, but certainly not a huge deal. These, these were grown men we're talking about here. Part of four couples who were together on an ark for, for over a year. I'm not too sure what the daily hygienic practices look like, but I'm sure this is not the first time one of them saw another one naked. I don't know that, though. Uh, but I... A deliberate reading into this text something that isn't there and then using other texts with allusions to similar behavior might just lead one to believe and teach that Ham was walking by one day, he saw his dad passed out, went into the tent and had homosexual intercourse with his father. You've heard this, I'm sure. Well, you're hearing it today. (laughs) You've heard it. Right, Matt? Yeah. Either that or, or he went in and, and castrated him in an effort to usurp the authority of the patriarch in utterly humiliating fashion. This is not something I just threw in here for shock value. That's the take of some very reputable commentators and, and preachers and Jewish historians, but not, not a few. I'm not talking about a few, but many. In fact, in the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 70a, it says just that. Having cited the passage discussing Noah, the Gemara, another essential component of the Talmud, which includes rabbinical teachings and commentaries on the Mishnah, goes into a discussion about what was actually done to him by his younger son, Ham. Quote, Rabbis Rav and Shmuel disagreed. One says that Ham castrated Noah, and one says that Ham sodomized him. The Gemara answers, this sage holds that both 
this offense and that offense were committed. Both all agree that Ham castrated Noah. Some say that Ham also sodomized him. Where in the world do they get that? Where do they get that? It all boils down to this word see. What does it mean that Ham saw the nakedness of his father? No, it doesn't say Ham uncovered the nakedness of his father. I mean, that would, would have been a clear indicator of some egregious sexual sin committed by Ham upon Noah. And the scriptural basis for, for the aforementioned interpretation would be a lot more solid In fact, in Leviticus 18, it lists a slew of divinely prohibited sexual sins actually committed by the Canaanites, of all people. They were given as a warning from Yahweh to the people Israel. And he says, don't be like them. Don't be like the heathen, okay? You shall keep my statues, you shall keep my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. This uncovering of nakedness means no fornication with dot, dot, dot. No sexual relations with dot, dot, dot. Modern translation, don't sleep with your family members. Okay? You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. That seems reasonable to me. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. He goes on. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover. That's grandchildren. That's grandchildren. Don't uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, your mother's sister, your father's brother, or his wife. She's your aunt, Moses says. I mean, it goes on and on like that, continually prohibiting incestuous relationships. Then other commands are given. Don't uncover a woman's nakedness during her menstrual impurity, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. Immediately, this uh, terminology, lie with, is emphasized. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. That's what it says. You shall not lie with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole thing here. Uh, Read it tonight for yourself. (laughs) It'll be wonderful bedtime uh, reading. You'll understand, though, that this uncovering of nakedness is not the same thing that's what's being said in our text here. First of all, Ham didn't uncover anything. Noah took his clothes off. Second of all, in just a few chapters, Moses will tell us about Lot's two daughters who got their dad drunk and made him lie with them so that they could have children. Now, if such a violation occurred here, I think Moses would have come right out and said so, but he didn't. He just said Ham saw Noah's nakedness. He saw He didn't uncover, he didn't castrate, he didn't sodomize, he didn't lie with, he didn't even, as other scholars have said, take this opportunity to have intimate relations with his own mother who then gave birth to this cursed Canaan. People say this. He, He looked. He walked by the tent. He saw his dad naked and passed out. 
He made the conscious decision then to go and tell his brothers about it. That's all we know. That's all it says here. Now, what kind of look are we talking about here? I think that's a better question. Was it a a voyeuristic, peeping Tom-like look, as we see in the woeful warnings of Habakkuk 2? Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness? Was it this form of uh, (coughs) voyeuristic perversion committed by Ham that would justify the cursing that follows? One commentator rightly said, voyeurism in general violates another's dignity, robs that one of his or her instinctive desire for privacy and for propriety. It is a form of domination. Domination. And I would say that's true of lust in general. Really, in our day, porn in general. I think a lot of folks believe what, what they view on their phones or their tablets or their computer. It's not harming anyone because there's no physical contact here. But Beyond just the perversity of looking at another human being who doesn't actually know you, hasn't actually consented to your specifically viewing him or her in this condition, there's an element of twisted domination with every click, every pick, every video, even every thought of lust. It goes much deeper, you see, than just a quick gratification of flesh or the undelivered satisfaction which sin always promises. No, it removes the human dignity of all involved. That's why Jesus says, man, if you even look at a woman with lust, you're, con- you're committing adultery. Essentially, you're uncovering their nakedness in your hearts. You're violating and degrading my divine image bearers, even my precious daughters, and you're bringing shame upon yourself in the process. Was Ham guilty of viewing his father in this light? Was there a temptation even to homosexual incestuous behavior? Again, I don't know. But we have to be careful not to read it into this text here because it doesn't explicitly state as much in verse 22. Here's what I see as the correct interpretation based on the plain, literal, normal reading of this verse. And Lord, forgive me if I'm wrong. He saw his dad naked. He went and told his brothers. And it's their immediate reaction, I believe, that reveals the true heart motivations of Ham, okay? Shem and Japheth went in, Moses says in verse 23, and took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders. They walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backwards so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned backwards so they didn't see their father's nakedness. What what do you mean? They turned their heads so that they didn't rape or castrate their dad? Same words. They turned their heads so they didn't sleep with their mom? You see what I'm saying? No, it's that they, they didn't stare at their dad as he lay there in such a pathetic state. Maybe even so their wives didn't come by and see him because they knew that it would bring shame and disgrace upon his name, his, his reputation. No, Shem and Japheth, they wanted to honor their father, right? Ham wanted to humiliate his father. So much so that, it, that he went and told them, probably something like, guys, you should see the old man. Look at this guy. He's a drunk, a naked drunk. He's the leader of our family here? Come on. No, he dishonored his father. 
The, the fifth commandment wasn't there yet, but the principle was, right? Honor thy father and thy mother. That's what we see with Shem and Japheth. We see the very opposite with Noah's youngest son. And I think there's some practical application here. The first is obvious. Don't get drunk with wine, okay? Noah put himself at a huge disadvantage here by getting drunk, leading to his getting naked and passing out. Now, to his credit, he didn't do it publicly like we see so often today in the bars and the clubs. But he put himself at a disadvantage by dulling his senses, right? He wasn't sharp. He wasn't alert. He wasn't aware. He was intoxicated. He was blacked out. He, he opened himself up for attack, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And as a result, he brought shame and disgrace to himself and his family. Look at the brokenness that follows. We'll see it over the next few chapters. He broke this family. And I'm sure you've seen the same. We've all seen this. I've seen men destroy their reputations. Even professing believers destroy their marriages, destroy their families by being enslaved to or in bondage to alcohol and drugs. The a practical takeaway would be to tell you what the rest of the scriptures tell us about alcohol. Okay? That while alcohol itself is not evil, uh, the abuse of, the misuse of, the addiction to alcohol is in fact evil. It's the excess of, the indulgence in, the drunkenness that is repeatedly warned against. And for this very reason, you dull the senses to the point where you uh, may bring disgrace upon your head. Plus, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. It'll kill you. I've seen it firsthand, many of my family members. I've often said it. We don't have livers in my family. We have dyers. That's a, such a bad joke. I don't know why I say that all the time. So inappropriate. Well, Moses says in verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine. This uh, verse is known as the post-Diluvian hangover. He awoke from his wine, knew what his youngest son had done to him. Well, how do you know? Well, I'd, I'd assume that Japheth and Shem told him. But again, I don't know that. Isn't that freeing to say sometimes? I don't know. Instead of going through some scatterbrained philosophical gymnastics trying to alleviate the tensions of things that aren't explicitly revealed, I don't know. I don't know how Noah knew. He just knew. Well, we do know this. Again, the results of the transgression were devastating for Noah's youngest son, not only for him, but for his son. Uh, uh, for his sons, even. The generation of sons to follow. And here it is. Noah finally speaks. Verse 25.3 in your outline, Noah awoke from his wine, knew what his youngest son had done to him, so he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Now this is extremely important and it will have a monumentally significant ramification for Ham's line, beginning with the lad that we were introduced to back in 18. And they don't know what age Canaan was at this point. Many think he could, be, he could be a grown man by now, but we're not told. It just says that Noah cursed him into slavery and specifically placed, placed him in subjugation to the two older brothers, Shem and Japheth. Now, why Canaan? Why is Canaan cursed here? What did Canaan do to deserve this? Well, nothing at this point, though, 
As the scriptures unfold, we'll see he and his line would go on to live their own depraved lives. But here, he's simply a casualty of his father's sin. And even Noah's sin before him, that's just how it is. We know this isn't outside of the character uh, of God, the nature of God. In the Decalogue, we're told, you shall not worship idols or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, This is a generational cursing here. Canaan, who is the youngest son of Ham, as we'll see next week, bears the ancestral fruits of his father. As again, that sinful nature is passed down from father to son to father to son. Now, I also think, and this is my personal opinion, that Ham gets gets his in this cursing as well. It's almost as if Noah is saying, okay, you're willing to disgrace your father, disgrace my name. Now you're going to see what it's like to have a son who despises you. Your baby, your youngest, I'm cursing him because of what you did. But that's speculation. I can't prove that. I can, say, I can say, however, that this prophetic curse upon Canaan was originally from God. How do I know? Because it came true. We don't even get out of the next chapter without seeing the ramifications of this curse play out as the Canaanites, different from the Canaanites back in chapter 4 and 5, But the Canaanites were, in fact, in a state of perpetual, ungodly, unrighteous living and near perpetual subjugation to the lines of both Shem and Japheth. And it's worth mentioning that the punishments would be just as the Canaanites were some of the the most wicked and shameless people alive, which is interesting considering who wrote this account. And the timing of its being heard by the people Israel, namely when Joshua led them in to conquer the Canaanites and take the land promised to Abraham just a few chapters from now. That's why it's prophetic. The Canaanites would be punished not just for the sins of their fathers but for their own debauchery. And Israel would be the instrument that God used to bring about that punishment. Same thing is happening today in Israel. Right. Again, much more on that next week. For now, Noah also gives a blessing in verse 26, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. Interestingly, this is a prayerful prophecy directed at Yahweh, asking for the blessing of Yahweh. That's what he said. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Shem, which again means name. So, blessed be Yahweh, the God, Elohim, of the name. Now, we've talked about how important the name of God is since back in Genesis chapter 1. The name of God speaks of the perfections of God, the attributes of God, the nature of God. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of the name. Blessed be the God of Shem. It's a blessing to the Lord. So, do you remember that question that we asked earlier? Which one of these sons would go on to carry on this godly line? The righteous seed. Well, it seems we have our answer here. Is there a covenant connection with Shem that we all should be aware of? I'd say so. Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 confirms it. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, became the father of Arpachshed uh, two years after the flood. Then it goes on. Arpachshed fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber, who fathered Peleg, who fathered Ru, who fathered Serug, who fathered Nahorn, who fathered Terah. 
And Genesis chapter 11, verse 26 says, And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Abram, who was also known as who? Abraham, that's right through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as you continue to read the divinely inspired text, through whom the promised seed would come. This all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It all goes back to the seed of the woman. Now we're going to spend a a good amount of time on this week, uh, on this next week, Lord willing. But I thought it was important to address some of the misunderstandings in 20 through 24, as well as to bring this chapter to a close by looking at the final words in verses 28 and 29. Namely, that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the uh, days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And just like that, we see another version of, and he died. You remember that back in chapter 5? How many times, Brad? Eight times? And he died? A lot. That's right. Great answer. Starting with Adam. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, third son, by the way, were 800 years. And he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. (coughs) Same thing here. But the parallels don't end there. Think about it. Both Adam and Noah were given a charge to multiply, to fill the earth. Both Adam and Noah were involved in a prophecy of the coming, coming deliverer, the seed of the woman, after they fell. Both Adam and Noah were at one point the head of the human race. Both Adam and Noah sinned against their creator. Adam fell in the garden by tasting the forbidden fruit. Noah fell in a vineyard after getting drunk on the fruit of the vine. Both Adam and Noah were found to be naked, Right? Adam became aware of his nakedness and was ashamed. Noah got naked and was shamed. Both men had coverings supplied to them from an outside source, didn't they? And, and both, both men were graciously given the opportunity, opportunity to live by the same covenant-keeping God, to live for hundreds of years upon this earth, even after sinning against him, yet still enjoying fellowship, communion with their, their creator by faith alone. Now, here's why I say this. If Adam can fall in the perfect environment of the garden with perfect fellowship with his perfect creator, and if righteous Noah can fall post-justification by grace alone through faith alone in this whole new world, certainly we all have the ability to sin as well. Right? Is that right? And we all have sinned. And we all do sin regardless of our tenure in the faith, regardless of our age. Think about it. This guy was over 600 years old. Uh, He had spoken with God. He had heard God speak to him, saw some of the greatest miracles in all of the world history. He sacrificed to the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He obeyed and honored the Lord, and yet he still fell. And he was still subjected to the ultimate punishment for sinners, which is death. Physical death, which outside of Enoch, all men and women before and all men and women since have had to experience as well. Death, which you will experience as well. Should the Lord tarry, you will die any moment now. Because of sin. 
the most important thing that I want to leave you with today is not what happened to this guy when he got drunk and passed out in his tent at age 620, but rather what happened the moment he took his final breath at age 950. I'm concerned with every inspired text, to be sure. Every text. And the examination of every inspired text is important. But I'm not nearly as concerned with this text as I am with your everlasting soul. That's what, that's what I'm concerned about this morning. The scriptures tell us that like Enoch, like Abel before him, Noah walked by faith. Noah had faith, yet Noah fell. Noah sinned. Noah's flesh got the best of him. But Noah had justifying, saving faith. He was made alive spiritually. He was saved by his faith in the promises of God, and therefore he escaped the eternal judgment of God. He was delivered from the righteous wrath of God, delivered to eternity in his presence by grace alone. And I want to make sure that you too possess such saving faith. That's what I want to know. I I will sin today. You, You will sin today. And and it should grieve us, and we should mourn over that sin. We should repent of that sin. We should turn from that sin. But we also need to realize that those in Christ have been saved from the penalty of that sin. We have been forgiven completely of all of our sins, past sins, present sins, the ones I'll commit today, and future sins, one I haven't even walked through yet. We have been forgiven of all of them. I want you to Leave this place today making absolutely sure that this is true of you. That you are saved by faith alone, not by anything you've done or by anything you've stopped doing, but only because in the sovereign grace and mere good pleasure of God, he gave you ears to hear his call through his word and soften your heart to believe in his gospel of grace. His gospel, which says that a deliverer did come. This promised deliverer did come. That through the God of Shem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nations of the earth were, in fact, blessed. That we, too, can enjoy the blessings of the one who came from their line, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was born of a virgin, born of a woman, conceived of through the power of the Holy Spirit, who came and lived a perfect life only to be hung on a Roman cross, who gave his life a ransom for many, who defeated the power of sin and death, who crushed the head of the serpent and delivered his people, his chosen people, from not only eternal separation from the love of his Father, but from the bondage to their own sin nature. We're no longer in bondage to our sin. We can choose to act in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. Isn't that great? Well, I want to ask you this morning if, you're, if you are one of those if you're one who believes. Are you one of those who has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, through his sacrificial death, subsequent burial, triumphant resurrection, his glorious ascension back up to the right hand of the Father, where he is now, even now, ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him by the Holy Spirit who indwells them? Are you one of those? We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of of that sin is death. 
But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you received this gift by faith? Have you received it? I pray and trust that you have. I want to invite you who may be hearing this, his call for the first time through his word uh, this morning. I want to invite you to come to him. I want to invite you to turn from your sin. Ask him to cleanse you of your sin, to turn to your creator and be saved from his righteous wrath and only by his amazing grace alone. Would you do that this morning? Amen. I can assure you he is both willing and able to save your soul today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's have Noel and the music team come up and close us in musical worship. Please pray with me now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the, the blessings and encouragement in them. It's a tough passage. It's a little bit risque as far as we're concerned, but it's, the next text dictates what we're going to talk about, and it's a joy to be able to go verse by verse because it's in the verse-by-verse verse exposition that we see your character, your nature revealed, including your graciousness, your faithfulness, just this, uh, the abundant mercy you've poured out on us sinners. We're so grateful for the gospel. So grateful for salvation. So grateful to be called your people. So grateful to be called your church. We love you. We love your word. We love your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.